Hello, everyone. We're so happy you're joining us today for another episode of Inside College Admissions, a podcast powered by SCORE. My name is Ashley Smith. I'm the marketing director here at SCORE. And today I am once again joined by Peter Van Buskirk to have a conversation that we're calling a temperature check on college admissions. This is the second conversation in this mini series and is intended to give you, our listeners, an update on the most recent conversations we're having with those who work in the world of college admissions. But before we dive in, I'd like to give a warm welcome back to Peter. Uh, Thank you, Ashley. It's good to be with you. Always great to have you here, Peter. And for those of you who haven't listened to our first episode on a temperature check on college admissions, we'd like to give you some background on how this came about. So Peter is the owner and founder of Best College Fit and a strategic advisor for SCORE. And every year he hosts an event called the No Name Conference where admissions leaders from across the country come together to talk about a lot of things in the college admissions space. So our goal today is to give you a recap of some of the overarching themes that are coming out of these conversations, but I'll leave it to Peter to fill in any other gaps that I may have missed from the intention of the conference itself. Well, thank you, Ashley. And, and before I, I do that, I just have to comment on, on the title here, the temperature check. I think that uh, in, in college admission for much of that time, we've done this conference over 30 years, the temperature has been 98.6 all the way, <laughs> mild fluctuations. But I think the, the uh, coronavirus this year has uh, really jolted the system uh, so that there are some pretty serious fluctuations in, in uh, temperature, uh, even in, in the last few months. But the, the, the No Name Conference has uh, been a wonderful tradition that was established, again, about 30 years ago with a couple of colleagues. I pulled together a, a group of deans of admission and uh, pretty well-traveled secondary school counselors and, and some independent consultants to take a look at the year gone by, you know, what, what's happening, what's good, what's not so good, what do we see over the horizon, and so on. And it turns out it became pretty popular. <laughs> we do these sessions in two and a half day uh, schedules so that we can sit around a conference table. There's no presumed expert. Everyone's an expert. But uh, along with my colleague, I facilitate the conversation on different topics. And uh, it just gives everyone an opportunity to, to unload, if you will, and to, to think forward and project the kinds of things that, that, that they might imagine into the future. So the last couple of years have been tough because in 2020, we had to cancel the name conference because of COVID. And, and out of a, an abundance of caution, we decided that 2021, we should cancel as well. This year, however, we decided to try a series of, of webinars, or now we're calling them video conferences, with members of our group who, who would like to, to join in the conversation. And it's been remarkably well-received. Normally, when we do in-person programs, uh, we have 30 people representing different backgrounds educationally at the table for facilitated uh, sort of a think tank conversation. Well, now we have two-hour sessions, and uh, it's kind of hard to to get everybody's voice in in two hours, but uh, still we really enjoyed the opportunity at the very least to see each other and uh, do, as you say, the temperature check. Mm -hmm. Even if it's just through the screen, right? It's just a nice way to get people together. Exactly. Even for people who are all Zoomed out this year, the, the, the Zoom can, can bring us that gift. Yeah, absolutely. So with that being said, let's get right into it. Um, I'm curious. I know that you recently just had the second, I believe, out of the series of three of your virtual events conferences. And, you know, there's there's a lot of things taking place now that we're 
towards the end of the first quarter, towards the end of March, and you know a lot of news about the vaccine and other things that are more positive than they have been in the past related to the pandemic. So I'm just kind of curious, is, is, was the group a little bit more optimistic or what was the mood of the group during this last conversation that you had? And first, I have to correct you, because of the interest in this conversation, we had to expand to four. So this is the second of four. Oh, wow. Okay, great. I would say real quickly, it, it was pretty clear that there's a level of exhaustion that's setting in so far. If you, if you look back, literally a year to the point at which COVID became real to the world. And it wasn't just something that was happening in another part of of the world that, that wouldn't affect us when, when we were all in it. The, the whole concept of the pivot, the notion that high schools would, would have to figure out some way to get kids to the finish line of their high school academic year, colleges would have to do the same thing. It was a real test of ingenuity and innovation among educators, really, and, and at a time when they couldn't huddle around a table and, and do things together. So uh, they, they had to immediately work remotely on on solving a problem that they'd never seen before. And and I think that the effect has been a very positive one. However, when I say people are exhausted, it's just been a long haul. It's been a marathon, especially for folks on the college side. On the secondary school side, the the guidance counselors and the college advisors uh, have had to make some pretty serious adjustments as well. The lift isn't quite as heavy for them as it would be for, the, say, the deans of admission and their staffs who are having to not only select a class, but recruit the class and uh, do all the things in between. So I, I think right now folks are feeling a sense of some relief that we're almost to the finish line of this current admission cycle and feeling that, gosh, it's going to be great when we can open our campuses fully again. A, a number of schools have experimented with with partial openings. Uh, Some schools have been fortunate to be open all year, but under pretty stark circumstances in terms of social distancing and and that sort of thing. But uh, I think everybody's just yearning for that that moment in time when when things are are open and the the traditional campus tours can start to take place and the information sessions. And I think there's still, unfortunately, uncertainty about what the calendar is going to look like in that regard. Sure. So you touched on something that I wanted to ask you about, which is obviously at this point of the year, there's been a lot of activity from, you know, the the fall up until this point. So can you give us any insight in terms of what the um, admissions team's perception is going to be for this yield season? It's a great question, Ashley. And, and I think that the, the reactions will vary according to institutions. And, and if we kind of look at institutional types by selectivity and break them down from the sort of uber selective, the, the I, I hate to attach titles to like best or, or top because I just think that they're false and, and misleading. But if we talk about schools in terms of their selectivity, maybe those that are admitting, oh, say, 30% or fewer of their applicants is one group. Uh, this, another group would be those admitting 30 to 60% of their applicants. And then the balance and most of, of American colleges and universities are admitting more than 60%. They're relatively open in the college admission process. For that last group, every year is a scramble. Uh, and, and this year is gonna be an even greater scramble because there's, there's always a trickle down effect. The, Whichever students don't settle in at that first, the most selective group of schools will trickle down to the second most selective group of schools and then to the relatively open admission. So that, that last group is going to always be a struggle. And, and it's kind of 
for whatever reason, kind of popular for people to speculate about which schools aren't going to make it. Yeah. Typically the schools that have the greatest challenge in any time, but particularly a time like these where the, there are real market constrictions will be those schools that are among the less selective. And they're probably the less visible as well, unless they happen to be in your community. But the schools that have some degree of selectivity uh, or a high degree of selectivity are, are doing okay. The, I'm going to skip now to the most highly selective because they'd get all the notoriety. Many of those institutions this year experienced great increases, not small, but great increases in uh, the numbers of applications received. Um, and uh, I know that we, you wanted to talk about this in perhaps another conversation or another question, but many speculate that the, and justly, uh, justifiably so, that the increase of the test option has had a real bearing on pushing a lot of kids and the psychology of that's fascinating uh, toward those, those most selective schools. Those places are going to be running wait lists well into the, the late spring and summer, as will the, the middle group. The, the middle group is, is probably gonna be fine, but their tendency, this is the group that might be admitting 30 to 60% of their applicants. They'll tend to over admit a little bit because they don't know how to predict the yield on their offers of admission because of COVID. Uh, there's a tendency for families to stay a little closer to home with the pandemic than to venture out than they might have before. So those schools uh, will, will, uh, will have over-admitted in the regular admission process. Many of them will also have, if you will, over-admitted in the early decision process in an attempt to, to try to secure as much of the class early on as possible and still uh, have probably put more students on wait lists this spring than would have been in the past. The, the wait list, if you will, is like a, an insurance policy. If, if we don't get the class with those we admit up front, we go to the wait list. So it's gonna be a very fluid situation for a lot of students who are looking at that, that middle group of schools, the 30 to 60% admit rate schools, uh, and that, that'll probably be pretty fluid right up into the middle of June. The, the most selective schools are, are <laughs> trying to deal with an unusual phenomenon. They're always, they've always been incredibly selective, some admitting as few as one out of 20, but many of those schools, the one out of 20 admit schools, saw increases of 20 to 40% in their applications this year. So maybe they're admitting one out of 30. And, and that just kind of breaks all the predictive modeling that, that they could do based on past years. So my sense is that, that they may not have admitted many more students than they would normally, but their wait list will be longer. So if, if you end up on a wait list in the spring of 2021, it is not over. It's just game one into extra innings, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I'm wondering, and you tell me if I'm off base here, but the wait list, does that play into what the admissions teams would reference in terms of like summer melt to people deciding not to come? Um, do they then go to the wait list in those scenarios? Can you kind of give us some insight around that as well? Sure. And, and the notion of summer melt, for those of you who are just hearing it for the first time, is the, the reality that any institution will see a percentage of students who have made an enrollment commitment back out of that commitment, sometimes for personal reasons, health reasons, financial reasons, sometimes a change of heart with regard to where they, they ultimately want to attend or, you know, there's a lot of reasons that can contribute to that. But the summer melt is, is that expected attrition from the, the, if you will, the gross enrollment. So mm -hmm. when, when colleges and universities are planning their enrollment activities right now, they're shooting for the class plus a factor. 
and that that plus factor represents the summer melt. So when I was being dean of admission, we knew that we wanted to settle with a class of 500, but we would target 560 because we knew historically we would tend to lose approximately 60 students over the summer. So colleges will, will be doing that. Now, to answer your question, the enhanced waitlist activity has always factored that in and will factor that in again this year. Got it. Okay. Well, you, you also touched on something in reference to the waitlist that, as you mentioned, I do want to get into a little bit, and that is related to being test optional this year. Obviously, we've seen more schools do this than ever before. Can you give us some insight in terms of what the conversation was related to that, how that impacted the number of applications submitted, um, what their feeling about that whole process was? Well, it's interesting that the most selective schools recognize big bumps in their applications this year. And uh, I think they will attribute those bumps to the impact of, of the test option. What's interesting then is to kind of look into the psychology of it all. Why would that happen? And, and we heard an awful lot from secondary school and independent consultants who deal with the students <laughs> who, are, who are making those decisions. And, and they, they drove them nuts because there were a lot of students who came into the process with unrealistic expectations about the most selective schools. And now that those most selective schools were making the submission of tests optional, those kids were saying, well, without having to worry about the test, I have a better chance, don't I? I'm going to go ahead and apply. Mm -hmm. And the answer is no, you don't have a better chance. I'm fast forward then to say that those most selective schools are pretty savvy at discerning the, the level of sincerity in a candidate, uh, as well as the level of academic preparation and, you know, ability to rise above the rest. So yes, you know, schools that were admitting one out of 20 might have gone to one out of 30 this year, but I don't feel too badly for them because they, they're able to discern pretty quickly who the really serious candidates are. But yeah, the, the, the impact of test optional was to attract a lot of unrealistic candidates into applicant situations where they simply didn't have a very good choice at all. Now, that said, there were a lot of really uh, heartwarming stories of, of students who were able to apply to schools without submitting tests. And, and in this case, maybe students who were coming from disadvantaged background, marginalized students, et cetera, for whom the tests would have been an obvious bias against them, but without the tests, were able to present themselves in a more a meaningful and positive um, so there, there, there was a plus side. There, there were some opportunities for students who might not have uh, cracked <laughs> the admission at some of the most selective schools, uh, having some opportunity. But, but frankly, given the, the incredible volume of candidates, those, those exceptions were far and few between. So something else too, obviously related to this is um, the impact of early decision and colleges wanting to, you know, potentially extend that to more students so that they could be more certain on what their numbers would look like for the year. So what would you say the biggest difference was this year for early decision and what was the impact of that on the overarching admissions process? Well, I, I'm not going to mention names of schools. I, I just don't think that would be appropriate. But but I, I can tell you that many schools, especially in that somewhat selected, the, the 30 to 60 range, used early decisions strategically to build as much of the class as possible. Prior to this year, it wasn't unheard of for a college or university, you know, in that moderately selective to highly selective, because there's some very highly selective schools that did this too, to admit a, a close to half of the class through early decision, mm -hmm. which 
has a real impact on regular decision. It just eliminates by the hundreds numbers of students that can be admitted in regular decision. This year, I'm familiar with at least one school that went above 60%. Oh, wow. Of, yeah. And um, what that means is the students who applied regular decision to that school might have thought they were looking at having an opportunity, you know, maybe a one out of three chance of getting in. Well, their chances were one out of 10 or one out of 15, given the squeeze on, on that. And plus, many of these same schools are also looking at the regular decision candidates and saying, you know, well, we like you, but we're, we're not quite sure if you're going to come. So let's put you on the wait list. And if you're really interested, we'll take you from the wait list. Meaning that the selection of students from the wait list then is a high yield proposition too. Not quite as high a yield as early decision where you admit one to get one, but it's almost, almost as close. So the, the net effect again, Ashley, has been that the regular decision candidate pool at many selective schools is squeezed more and more and more. It's just insane. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, while we're still kind of talking about the wait list too, is there anything for our student or family listeners here, if, if you are put on the wait list, do you have any quick words of advice for them based on, you know, maybe if it's like your absolute top choice or versus a school where, you know, it, it may not be ultimately where they want to go? Well, as I advised a young man the other day, I said, and he was placed on a wait list at a pretty selective school. And I said, you know, respond to them, let them know that, that you're the first choice school, if that's true. Mm -hmm. If it's not true, let them alone. Let them focus on students who are really serious about them right now. So yeah, if, if you end up on a wait list, what you need to do, first of all, is, is let them know that you're serious about remaining active on the wait list and that if admitted, you'll come. Because that's at the end of the day, that's the primary consideration for schools when they admit students from the waitlist. They, they may give you all kinds of explanations for how they, they only want students who are in the top 10% or have scores at such a level. But all, all of the, the initial rationale for waitlist and placement on a waitlist goes away very quickly uh, and, and gives way then to two basic considerations. One is you know, who can pay? Because frankly, admitting students from the waitlist who need substantial financial aid prematurely, in other words, admitting them before you really know how the response is on the regular candidates is, is pretty foolish because it's one way an institution can go over budget with financial aid. And the other is who's gonna show up. So what you wanna do is, is provide that follow-up to the institution that says, yep, I'm interested, do you take me, I'm coming, and make sure they have, I think the key thing here is make sure they have all of your possible contact information because they don't want to spend a lot of time trying to track you down. And if the day they want to reach you is a day that, that maybe you've gone to you know, hang out with your friends or maybe you've been able to finagle a weekend at the beach or something like that, they might call, make sure your cell's ready. Absolutely. Something that we have also been just putting, you know, notes and other content pieces or whatever it may be is that, you know, it, it's not infrequent that, and you can tell me if you disagree with this, that admissions teams will also reach out via email. So even though it may not be always the preferred method to just make sure you keep an eye out for that from the colleges to make sure that you're not missing any key communications there. I, I would agree. And, and the bottom line is that whether it's email or phone, um, you need to be ready with a decision because they're, they're not going to say, uh, we, we're going to be able to accept you from, from the wait list. Uh, do you think you'd be interested? Uh, we can give you two or three weeks to think about it. No, they, they'll want to know probably within 24 hours right. that yep. you're going to accept that. And uh, if you say yes, 
then they'll send you an offer letter and they'll expect you to send your deposit in within like three days. So yeah, it's, so it's be prepared. <laughs> a very, very fast transaction. That's right. Got it. So something else that you said that I thought was really interesting was related to some of the predictive modeling that goes on when admissions teams and colleges are looking at their potential class. Do you think that the predictive modeling for these teams has forever been disrupted because of COVID? I wouldn't say forever. I, I think that it will discover pretty quickly that with new data sets, colleges and universities will, will modify pretty quickly their expectations. I think that there's a concern among colleges uh, that the next cycle for the, the high school class of 2022 could be a, a difficult one for them to manage as well, because they're just not sure how to predict the likelihood of enrollment for students. But I, I suspect that once we get through this next cycle, uh, another, another 12 months, that things will settle down and there will be another expectation that, that is generated by the predictive analytics that it probably won't be too far off what we've known for a long time, or colleges have known, but it'll be different. But I think it'll stabilize. Sure. Yeah. And I guess the thing that I would be paying attention to if I were on the admission side is whether certain trends that have taken place throughout these uncertain years seem to stay in place. For example, if the mindset toward applying to college has forever been impacted by this, and it'll just be, I mean, we'll only know over time, but, you know, something that comes to mind for me right away is are students going to be less inclined to go far away? Or are they going to maybe want to stay closer from here on out just because of the additional comfort or whatever it may be? So it'll be really interesting to see what plays out over the next couple of years. Well, it, it will be. Uh, and I think students need to very thoughtfully and carefully take stock of how they like to engage in learning, because it could be that the learning environments that they would enter into otherwise are different than sort of the, the romantic notion of what it would be like to go off to college. And I think that, that they, they need to, again, reflect on, on what it is they want to get out of the college experience and more specifically how they can get it and then as they, they begin to look at colleges. And I would add, just kind of reflecting back on that particular comment, families have felt dislocated from college campuses and, and the guidance counselors spoke to that uh, extensively. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's also true that there is a rich mine of, of information available about colleges and universities on their websites. And it's, it, it's not often that students are inclined to want to kind of burrow into those websites and, and ferret out really good information about academic programs and who teaches and what they teach and how they teach and, you know, what, what's your dog's name and that kind of thing. Uh, but there's a lot of information that students can glean from websites, even though they may not be able to visit campuses. Mm -hmm. I would add one more thing, if I might, uh, sure. I, maybe something you're going to talk about. So I hope I'm not anticipating it prematurely here. <laughs> There's a real concern, speaking of enrollment, real concern about college readiness for the current seniors, and certainly even more so for the current juniors, soon to be seniors. And a number of reasons for that. Number one, many of them have been functioning in uh, virtual environments, and there's a lot of evidence that, that kids aren't showing up. I mean, they, they might show up uh, for the class at the start and put their avatar on the screen and then, you know, go play video games somewhere else. So the, the, the degree of accountability for kids in general is, is really low right now. And um, I think that high schools are in a bind because what do we do? Do we 
do we hold these kids back if they if we can't see that they've been actually doing the work or doing it well uh, or do we we find ways to pass them through there's also concern that kids are cheating that that there are assignments given online and kids are coming up with remarkably professional looking <laughs> projects and essays etc in in response to some of the questions that that are being asked of them so the integrity of the academic process is is very much in question right now and finally schools that are looking at students for STEM related uh, mm -hmm. academic programs are really concerned that the kind of progressive activity students would have in math, science in the junior and senior year simply hasn't been the same. Sure. And kids entering engineering programs may not have the kind of, they'll have the ability, but not the right kind of preparation to step in and be successful the way they would have otherwise. So there's some real concern about what the transition into college is going to be like for kids this fall and next fall, given the unevenness of, of their instruction in high school. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. And I'm so curious to see what that will look like too, because I'm sure it's a very real concern for both the high schools and the colleges. I'm wondering what that would translate to in terms of you know the impact. Is it students dropping out, transferring, whatever it might be. But I think that that's a great point because at the end of the day, you know, we won't really understand what that academic preparation looks like until they arrive on campus. And going to college for most students is a shock in normal circumstances. So what is it going to look like now? So that's really interesting. There, there are two things I would say. One, I would, I would just remind folks, if they don't know already, <laughs> that in our country, there's an embarrassing statistic with regard to college completion. Mm -hmm. Barely half of the students who start college in our country will ever finish. Yep. It's 55, 56% will ever get a degree any time in their lives. So we're, all, we're starting <laughs> with a pretty low bar. Sure. And add into this mix, COVID-related mix, where, where students are starting college on less sure ground with regard to their preparation, they will not have been in a traditional academic learning environment in high school for the last year or two. Uh, they might not be going into a traditional college environment for the first year or so. So th there's, there's real reason to be concerned about retention. The other thing that came up in our conversations pervasively throughout the conversations is the, the mental health of students yeah. um, and, and the way that they're having to respond to their what's going on in their lives in general right now. You know, obviously there are going to be some who are going to be fine, but as, as one counselor said, we're concerned about the hiders, the, one, the ones that turn on their, their screen for the class, but, but then disappear. And we just don't know, the schools don't know how to read these kids. They don't see them in the hallways right now. They, they, as one counselor said, that we feel like our, our relationships are much more transactional than they had been for many years. Yeah. When you could see a kid in the hallway, maybe at an athletic event, at a musical event, and, and establish a, a, a broader rapport with that student and, and have a better sense of uh, you know, who that young person is in life rather than just uh, in the classroom. So there's, there's real concern that that tendency to start but not finish could be much greater, much greater for a couple of years. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you brought up the the statistics of, you know, the less than great statistics about the completion rate of those who enroll in a college or university. And that was, you know, one of the big reasons why SCORE was founded actually to help improve those, those outcomes and student success. And I think it's really important now more than ever to 
as you would say, have that sense of intentionality and, and purpose in, in the college going process and really paying attention to certain criteria and maybe forgetting about the rankings or whatever it may be and finding that place that is truly going to be best for you so that academically it works out well. And from a mental health perspective, you're in the type of environment that you'll thrive in. So the optimist in me hopes that the, the pandemic and the current environment will really help bring out some of those things in the college search process. But I, I do think it's something that everybody needs to be paying attention to right now. Well, and, and, and along those lines, one of the, the great worries now among educators, and certainly people who were part of this, this conversation, is the the future for the students were marginalized because they may not have the same access to technology mm-hmm. with the test option. You're thinking, okay, that may help some of those kids, but that means that there's going to be a greater uh, or closer examination of the work that they've done in the classroom. Sure. A fair number of them, a large number of them are in schools where, you know, the, the instruction during the pandemic has been very uneven uh, and, and they've been doing it remotely and the accountability is really low. Uh, so that from the college and university side, there are real questions about the integrity of the academic program in which those students are enrolled. So there's a concern that, that all the advantages that we've seen with regard to increasing access for the marginalized students may be lost for a period of three to five years. Yeah, absolutely. It's a huge concern of ours, and I think a lot of people's, rightfully so. Two more quick questions for you, Peter, before we wrap up. We actually get this question somewhat frequently, and I'd love for you to weigh in on it. And it kind of goes back to our theme around being test optional. Because more schools are offering that, you kind of alluded to this, what are admissions teams putting more emphasis or looking at more closely now than what they have before when they did require test scores? That's a great question. And and it was a question that I pressed folks on in our session this last Friday. The the, the very quick and easy response tends to be a little superficial is we focus more on courses and grades. Sure. Which is absolutely correct. Coursework the students have engaged in, grades they've received, those factors alone have consistently been the best predictors of success in college. So, all right, we'll start there. But if you're dealing with this at a school that might be admitting one out of five or one out of 20, <laughs> okay, everybody meets that criterion. So what do you do right. next? And what I was able to get folks to talk about and think about is, is how, number one, they're really looking for evidence that the student's application, the submitted application is purposeful. In other words, the student has a really good sense of what she wants to accomplish in college. Yeah. She's researched for herself what that is, and then she's researched institutions such that the decision to apply to XYZ College is because that institution rests at the end of her sense of purpose. In other words, she's found in that place the program, the opportunities, the instruction that will enable her to achieve her goals. And she can illustrate that synergy then that exists between herself and the place in the application. So this is something I think a lot of kids just don't think about is synergy. It's Mm -hmm. a T word, by the way, but we want to see (laughs) colleges want to see that intentional connectedness between the student and the institution. Mm -hmm. So in the absence of, of testing, 
uh, what they're really looking, and they, even with testing, what they were really looking for is evidence that, you know, you really get it about us. You know what you want and you see where we fit in your picture and, and it all, it, it makes sense. And, and we want to be part of, we want to invest in your success. We want to be part of your, your further ascent. So that, that's one thing. The other thing that's, I think, really important and a real opportunity for students now is uh, the way they present, I, I like to use the term, the invisible you. That part of the, the person that is not immediately visible to those around you. So in an essay, for example, students tend to kind of reflect back to their extracurricular activities and develop a, you know, a resume narrative, or they talk about a, a trip they had. And that's, that's nice, but that's really not revealing much about who you are. And the, the essay that, that offers that kind of revelation gets at, you know, what do you think? How do you think? Why do you think? What's important in your life? What's going on in the world that's impacted you? And, and what the admission officers are saying right now is, you know, you guys live, are living history. What's going on every day in our world is historic in many ways, whether it's climate change, social justice, election laws, you know, all kinds of things. How, how does that strike you? What do you think about that? Absolutely. Uh, and and not, not that you have to be an activist on the front lines, but you know, does this stuff matter to you? And the students who are able to show that kind of connectivity with things going on in their lives right now, they become very attractive to the, the very selective schools. Yeah, it's it's funny sitting here listening to this, you know, being many years now removed from the college admissions process. And my parallel, <laughs> the parallel that I draw mentally is, you know, it's similar to when you're applying for a job, you know, the employer wants to get a better sense of, of who you are, why you want to work there and, you know, how you see that helping your career and your talents and all of those things. So it's, you know, obviously the goal here is to get into the college of your choice, but you can take those lessons learned from this process and apply them to yourself professionally long-term. So I've talked with students for a long time about what I believe are five keys to success. And I think they're really important now too. Number one, they need to know themselves. Mm -hmm. In any time, uh, whether it's COVID or not, if if you enter into this process, starting with a list of colleges, you've already set yourself up for, for frustration, if not failure. You need to reflect first. So know yourself. Then number two, you need to know what you're getting into know the process. And that's changed an awful lot in the last 12 months. Number three, and this is a very personal one for kids. They need to make good choices <laughs> and yeah. they know, they know when they're not making good choices, but every day of their lives is an opportunity to choose in such a manner that it could affect their opportunities in the next day. Mm-hmm. Number four, when it's time to apply, they need to make sure that they use every part of the application to connect the dots, to create a clear sense of the person being considered for admission. And then the one that seems kind of trivial, but is really important is they need to number five, they need to believe in themselves. And, and a lot of young people enter this process because they feel they're supposed to rather than because they want to. And so, so when they, they have that sense of self, that sense of purpose, that will carry them through the rough days of this process to, to very happy endings. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Peter, thank you so much for chatting with us today. We really appreciate it. We, we love being able to have these conversations to make sure that we are, you know, up to date on all of the things taking place. Cause as we know, they're changing 
maybe by the hour, not even by the day. So big thank you. And we look forward to having more conversations with you as you complete the next two no-name conferences so that we can touch on the highlights and what we learned. So temperature's rising right now. So we'll see what happens in two four weeks. But thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And we hope temperature rising in a, you know, not in terms of fever, right? Let's let's make sure that we're staying healthy here. <laughs> Awesome. All right. Well, Peter, we will talk to you again soon. And for our listeners out here, thank you so much for participating. And if you have specific questions, please make sure to reach out so that we can get them answered and, you know, ask Peter in future conversations.